0: friends, and Shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry, and today I'm bringing you a message titled, The Three Witnesses to Passover. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, By the word of two or three witnesses, no one is to die or is to be put to death. No one is to be put to death by the word of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not rise up against a person for any offense or sin that he commits. By the word of two or three witnesses is a case to be established. Matthew 18, 16, Yeshua says, But if he does not listen, take with you one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall stand. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you, by the testimony of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. It's a biblical principle that traces its roots all the way back to Moses and the Torah. Deuteronomy 17:6 and 19:15 establish the principle of the two or three witnesses as being required for an accusation to stand. Yeshua reaffirms this in Matthew 18:16 where dealing with how to handle someone in the body of Messiah who has sinned against you, saying to first approach him one-on-one in private, and if he doesn't listen, to take two or three others with you to discuss the matter, a principle that Christians would do good to revisit in an age where social media allows you to simply delete someone from your contact list when offended or even without attempting to discuss it. Yeshua also uses this principle in John 8, where noting that he and his father testified together that he is the light of the world. And then we have Paul, not only in 2 Corinthians 13.1, but also in 1 Timothy 5.19, referring back again to this concept. I find it interesting that as we approach the Passover season every year, that these same three men... Who declare in unison that every word is to be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses, their own numbers totaling three, also make striking similar yet uniquely distinct statements regarding why we are to celebrate the biblical Passover, the Feast of Passover, along with the associated Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Day of First Fruits. Now, of course, Passover is the, the first part of the celebration where you prepare the lamb with the bitter herbs and have a nice feast meal with your family in your home as prescribed by Exodus chapter 12. And then the days of unleavened bread are the seven days following that where you don't have any leavened bread in your house. So you'd have all the flatbreads in your house and you rid your house of what I like to usually call regular bread. Um, and then you've got the day of firstfruits, which is the day that Yeshua rose from the tomb. So these festivals, these feasts, all have prophetic significance to the life and ministry of Yeshua. So let's take a look at these three witnesses and what they said regarding this matter, the matter of Passover. Witness number one is Moses. And Exodus 13.3 says, Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out from egypt out of the house of bondage for by a strong hand adonai brought you out from this place no hametz may be eaten now hametz is a hebrew word for leavened bread and matzot is the hebrew word for unleavened bread so you want to get familiar with those terms and notice The first word said by Moses here, remember this day. He proceeds to remind the people that it is is this day that God delivered his people from the hands of Egyptian bondage. Moses may very well be the most important prophetic voice in the totality of the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible that Christians typically wrongly refer to as the Old Testament. Now, the Bible was never intended to be divided into testaments, books, chapters, and verses. It's all God's Word from cover to cover. And some of that had to do with people trying to simplify study. Some of it, especially the division of so-called Old and New Testament, really traces to Marcionism. So, I'd be real careful with the use of the terms Old Testament and New Testament. Now, remember that Yeshua made the statement, for if you were believing Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. And that's in John chapter 5 verse 46. Considering that Moses wrote the Torah and that's the only known written work attributed to him, it stands to reason that the Torah was written about Yeshua. This is further emphasized in the opening words of John's gospel in saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. And then you jump to verse 14 and it says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And of course that refers to the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall time. Another great biblical feast season that has got prophetic significance to the life and ministry of Yeshua. And that we certainly see in the Gospels that he celebrated with his disciples. Now at the time this was said, There was no Christian Bible canon as we know today. The word or the statement clearly refers to the Torah as the Word in question with an added possibility that it really referred to the whole of the Tanakh. But it certainly, at the very least, referred to the Torah. Also, we have Yeshua's statement that He is the way, the truth, and the life. A phrase that has already been established as a description of the Torah within the Jewish culture of the time. If you go to Psalm 119, which is the longest single chapter in the entire Bible, the way the chapters are divided, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's also in the exact middle of what people would call the Christian Canon, which is all of the books in the Christian Bible as we have them today, and if you look at that psalm, Psalm 119 verse 1 says that the Torah is the way. And Psalm 119 verse 142 says the Torah is the truth. And psalm 119, 4, psalm 119 153 and 154 says that the Torah is the life or that it gives life. So it is that this Moses, the man who wrote of Yeshua in penning the Torah, Tells us to remember this day of Passover. Now, perhaps you're listening to this and of the inclination that Passover is Old Testament. Again, you know, that that term that, that that term is very misleading, Old Testament, New Testament. Those terms can be very misleading in understanding the Bible in a whole Bible context. And Part of whatever Christians believe has passed away through the Old Testament with the establishment of the New Covenant. And it's important to understand that Old Old Testament and New Testament are not really valid terms. Old Covenant and New Covenant are valid terms, and they mean something completely different. So Moses is just one of the three witnesses to keeping the Passover that we're going to be looking at in this brief study. So let's take a look now at witness number two, which is Yeshua, our Messiah. And certainly anything that Yeshua had to say should be regarded as the most important statements in the Bible. He is literally our Messiah. So if he said to do something, then we probably should do it, right? So Luke 22 verses 19 through 20 says, and when he had taken the matzah, Again, remember the term, matzah and hametz. Matzah is the unleavened bread. And when he had taken the matzah and offered the bracha, which is the blessing, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, here we see Yeshua, our Messiah, again, saying almost the same thing as Moses. Do this in memory. Remember, it's a memorial. Do it as a memorial. In much of Christianity, this event is generally referred to as the Last Supper and the basis of the tradition known as communion that stems from, you know, Christian interpretations of this text and, and other similar texts. But it's quite apparent from the context that this was not necessarily the initiation of some new ritual that is today minimized to, I, I like to say, a stale cracker the size of your fingernail and a cup of grape juice the size of a thimble. As if that's the best, We can offer our Messiah in, in his memory, in memory of the one who gave his life for us, but none of that really is seen in the passage itself. It's not, they're not taking communion in this thing. And we'll talk about communion just briefly, but they were celebrating Passover, the full Passover celebration is what they were doing in that passage. You know, if you study communion out, it actually traces back to a practice of the ancient Greek mystery cults. Just think about that for a minute, okay? And, And I could give you sources and in another message. I probably will, you know, go into more detail on communion, but... There are good theological resources that I have that will tell you about how communion came out of the Greek mystery cults, not out of the Bible. And that should be very concerning to any sincere believer. You know, this, this communion ritual was eventually used as a replacement of what we're commanded to do, which is keeping Passover. I would recommend you do a serious study of the history of this ritual, and if it's something you currently practice, consider abandoning it. A a good resource for this is an article I wrote titled Communion, Commandment or Convenience, which is available at www.truthignited.com. Now, clearly the context of this was not the taking of something called communion. The record is quite clear. as in verse 15, just a few sentences earlier, Yeshua says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What he was saying then in verse 19 to 20 was that we are to keep the biblical Passover feast in memory of him. So Christians have relegated this to like a little five minute ritual whenever they feel like working it in and You know, some do it ritualistically on a calendar date um, and others, you know, do it what they say when they're led by the spirit and this and that and the other. And, you know, all it is is a little religious ritual and it really is at best very, very loosely tied to Passover and ultimately comes out of, as I've said, the Greek mystery cults. So we were commanded even by our Messiah to celebrate the biblical feast of Passover at the appointed time once a year in the springtime. But the, the point is, we're supposed to celebrate Passover each year, not, not take communion just whenever you feel like it or you know whatever Christians do with that these days. Now, what's fascinating here is that Yeshua is in these statements declaring that the pending work of the cross and the resurrection, which were moments away when he said these things were parallel to the Exodus from Egypt. Think about that for a moment. The deliverance we have through Yeshua as our Messiah is directly connected through his own declaration with the original Passover, where God struck down the firstborn of all families in Egypt and led his people on a journey to their promised land. Clearly, it goes without saying that Yeshua would be the most important figure in the Gospels, in the whole Bible. You know, he is the most important figure in the entire Bible. As I've already stated, we're supposed to listen to him above everybody else, including the Apostle Paul. Just slide that in there. Now, here we have him in perfect agreement with Moses that we are to keep the Passover, not merely as a remembrance of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt anymore, but now also in remembrance of that Passover where he was crucified to provide a greater exodus, freeing us from the bondage of sin. Now sin, as we know from 1 John 3, 4, is the breaking, transgressing, violating of the Torah. Since keeping the Feast of Passover is a commandment of the Torah, then not keeping it would be a transgression of the Torah or breaking the Torah, violating the Torah. Therefore, one of the things the cross does for you is saves you from not keeping Passover. In other words, if you're saved from sin, one of the things you will do is begin to keep Passover because again, not keeping Passover would go against the commandment and therefore be sin. Now, there's also 612 other commandments in the Torah, uh, according to, you know, the accepted counts. You know, people generally accept that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Now, now there's some debate about that and that's, that's a whole other study that's outside of the scope of this message. So we'll stick with, for this message, the accepted 200, 613 commandments in the Torah. And if sin by definition is not keeping the commandments, then salvation by definition is harmonized with keeping the commandments. In other words, you're not saved from some bondage of the Torah. That's what Christians like to say. They believe that Jesus came to set us free from the bondage of the law and We don't have to follow the law anymore, and we've been set free from the law. That's there's nothing, not one thing in the Bible in context that supports that belief. You're saved from breaking the Torah, which would mean that if you're saved, you keep the Torah, you obey it. That that would be your natural desire to seek out what God instructed through Moses and do those things because you're saved from breaking the Torah. Does that make sense? That should make a lot of sense when you really stop and think about what the Bible says and how the Bible defines some of these terms. Now, today's Christians have mostly forgotten the Passover. As I mentioned before, they've traded this in part for a religious ritual they call communion. Now, while there's some evidence indicating that the earliest believers, maybe even in the first century, might have began to remember Messiah's death and resurrection with the bread and the cup frequently, they did so when they were gathered together for meals after the pattern of the Passover meal. So they they actually had communal meals, especially on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, they would have gatherings in their homes with meals and fellowship. And there's some evidence that says that they might have incorporated that aspect of the bread and the cup into that. Now, they weren't initially creating some new ritual or sacrament, I'll say that. They simply remembered his death and resurrection every time they ate together as The bread and the cup continually reminded them of those events. And they also continued to keep the Passover itself, annually, of course, as the memorial to Yeshua, their Passover lamb, just as he instructed them to. And, of course, he's our Passover lamb, too. And so we should be doing the same thing. Now, think about it like this. The early believers knew exactly what Yeshua was telling them to do and every year at Passover, they did exactly what he said. They kept Passover in his memory. But when they gathered together in their homes for fellowship, you know, especially on the Sabbath, as I said, they had meals together and someone might have taken the bread and the cup and perhaps said something like, hey, you guys, remember that time when we were having Passover and and, and he took the bread and he took the cup and, and reminded us to keep the Passover in his memory? And, And then they would all take the bread and the cup and remember that they were to remember him at Passover. So they were not creating a new ritual again. That came later through appropriation of a practice from the Greek mystery cults. The focus was always towards remembering Yeshua at the appointed time, the time he said he wanted to be remembered at the biblical feast of Passover. So when they were having these fellowships, You know they were just talking and having a good time and sharing memories and and they would be saying hey you know that that passover was amazing remember when he took the cup remember when he took the bread so they weren't creating a ritual they were just excited and sharing and being excited to look forward to the passover you know if you really study out the culture behind these festivals and behind the sabbath everything that they did was always moving forward toward the next big event. You know, for example, the Sabbath. They didn't name their days like today, we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They numbered the days, it was the first day until the Sabbath, the second day until the Sabbath, the third day until the Sabbath. Every day of the week was moving you towards the next Sabbath. And that's kind of the principle that applied here. They would gather together and they would have these meals and they were looking forward to the next Passover and they would be having their bread and their cup during their meal and say, Hey, you guys remember this? We get to do this again next year, you know, or we get to do this again in a couple of months. The bread in the cup, remember when he took the bread in the cup? That's what they were doing. They, they weren't. They weren't creating a ritual like what's done in churches today. Now, uh, let's go to the third witness. Witness number three is Paul, the apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, he says, Get rid of the old hametz, the leavened bread, so that you may be a new batch just as you are unleavened, For Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Let me me say that again. Verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Not with old hametz, the hametz of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread, the matzah of sincerity and truth. Now, Moses may be considered the most important prophetic voice in the Tanakh and Yeshua in the Gospels, but the Apostle Paul holds a unique place of significance in the remainder of Scripture as it is his writings that are so often used to say we don't have to follow the Torah. Yet we see here this very same Apostle Paul charging us to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Now, now, Christian theology was correct, Paul should not be telling us to keep the Passover. He should be telling us, oh no, that was a Jewish festival and we don't have to do that anymore because we are set free from the bondage of the law. But that's not even what he said. And, and clearly, he was including the week-long celebration of matzah, unleavened bread. He said, let us keep the feast, and he was talking about Passover and the following week-long celebration of unleavened bread. Now, isn't it interesting that the very person in the Bible, who so many people like to misquote as saying, we don't have to follow the Torah anymore, is telling us here to keep a feast that is part of the law. That these people want us to believe that we're not under anymore. What many fail to realize is that the context of Paul's not under the law statement is twofold. First, we need to look at Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Now, notice that this this begins with not being under the law. It pairs it together with sin not being master over us. As noted earlier, sin is breaking, transgressing, violating the Torah. So we're not under the law if sin, breaking the Torah, is not master over us, is not our way of life. Think of it like that. So if breaking the Torah is not your way of life, then you're not under the law, but not under grace. Now, I could go into some detail on that, but again, that's for another study, another time just know that sin, breaking the Torah, is not our way of life, then you're not under the law. Think of it like this. Before I move on, think about it like this. Two cars are going down the freeway, and the speed limit is posted 65 miles an hour. That's a pretty common speed limit on freeways these days. Now, one car is driving 65 miles an hour, doing the speed limit, staying within the boundaries of the law. The other car is going down the road 85 miles an hour, going way over the speed limit. Which car do you suppose is going to be stopped by the police and issued a citation under the law? The one that's obeying the law? one that's living according to the ways of the law or the one that's breaking the law so that's a good way to think about what Paul is saying in Romans 6:14 for breaking the Torah is not your way of life you're not under the law you're not penalized under the law because you are not breaking the law now we also need to look at Galatians 313 it says Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Now, now what's the curse of the law? For that, you need to go to Deuteronomy 28. And, And Paul was an amazing Torah scholar. He studied under Gamaliel, which was in the Jewish Pharisaical house of Hillel, which was one of the prominent Pharisaical schools of learning we know Paul was a Pharisee. He said, I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And we know that his teacher was Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel. So Paul knew what Deuteronomy 28 said. He was very familiar with Deuteronomy 28 when he made reference to the curse of the law. Now, these chapters often quoted by Christians, you know, in part. Most of them like to go to the list of blessings that starts in verse 3, and, you know, they'll go around saying, I'm blessed in the city, and I'm blessed in the field, and I'm blessed coming in, and I'm blessed going out, and I'm the head, and I'm not the tail, and blessed, 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 blessed. That they, they totally neglect the first couple verses where these blessings are linked directly to obeying the Torah. And then after verse 15, they ignore the rest of the passage where a much longer list of curses is imposed on those who do not keep the Torah. And that is the curse of the law. So, clearly, you know, as Paul was saying, was that if you receive Yeshua as your Messiah and begin to follow the Torah as a result you're no longer under the curse of the law. He was simply telling you what the Bible already said thousands of years earlier. And we can also look at Galatians 5.18. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, Ezekiel 36.27 gives us understanding of what that means. It tells us that when a person in the new covenant will be filled with the Spirit, then it will result in that person being caused to walk in God's law, which is the Torah. As I often say is the case, we see that Paul never taught against following what is written in the Torah and and charges us to keep the Passover in perfect agreement with Moses and Yeshua. Acts 18.21, depending on what translation you're looking at, indicates that Paul was eager to keep one of the feasts. Now, many believe that this was the Feast of Shavuot, or or the day of Pentecost. And Acts 20, verse 6 indicates that Paul was participating in observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, part of the overall celebration of Passover. In fact, Paul's entire defense of himself to his accusers, um, when, you know, recorded in Acts 24, 14, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, just as it was prophesied he would be, And he was charged with teaching that we don't have to follow the Torah anymore. That's literally what happened. He was arrested and charged with the exact same thing that Christians today believe he taught. And and this is how he defended himself against these accusations. And, And Christians who believe that Paul taught that we don't have to follow the Torah would be very, it would be very wise of them to look at these statements that Paul made when he was arrested and charged with teaching that we don't have to follow the Torah. He said in Acts 24, 14, he said, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything written in the Torah and the prophets. And then in Acts 25, 8, he picks back up and says, I have committed a no offense against the Torah or against the temple or against Caesar. The the man everyone uses to oppose following the Torah defended his theology by saying he believed everything written in the Torah and never violated it, continued to obey it, and never taught against it. So now I've got a question. Do you want tradition or do you want the Torah? I wanna close this message or bring this message toward a close by looking briefly at the traditions that try to replace the Passover. Now, I've already mentioned one of these traditions is called communion. I've noticed over the years that this ritual is more of a convenience for people who want to soothe their conscience by doing something that appears to fulfill a commandment with the least possible effort. After all, in private practice, it, it takes mere seconds to eat, you know, the tiny cracker and drink the shot of grape juice, and some people do that. Some people, you know, I take communion every day. Well, you know, whoop-de-doo for you, you know, how much time did that take you to do? You know, in some church settings, it, it might take a little longer, you know, because you you, sometimes you get this long-winded preacher, and he wants to give some lengthy teaching before, you know, everybody partakes of the elements of, but the actual communion ritual itself still takes very little time and effort on the part of the believer. You know, whether you're doing it at church, because what are you really doing? You're sitting there listening to some guy or some some gal give some message about why they think we should take communion, and then you just do it. It takes a few seconds to just do the, the little ritual thing. Now, the earliest believers may have remembered Messiah's death in a similar fashion, apart from the actual celebration of Passover. However, they did keep the Passover, and any additional highlighting of the bread and the cup, again, as I've mentioned, was during fellowship meals and never established as a religious ritual until later in history. Their their additional remembrances with the bread and the cup would have been during the full meal that they shared with others in the community of believers in their home fellowships typically during their Shabbat gatherings, Sabbath day gatherings. It it would have had a lot more meaning and significance than the little communion ritual today does. Because what they do today is a little religious ritual. That's all it is. I, I know they try to give meaning to it, but it's not what we're commanded to do in the Bible. It doesn't, it's never found actually in practice in the Bible in that fashion and it has definite ties to Greek mystery cults. So just think about some of that. Another replacement for Passover and much more concerning is a secular pagan holiday called Easter. Now greater details about this holiday are something I'll have to discuss in another message, but in short, Easter traces to worship of the pagan goddess named Eoster. Now, there's there's a great record by a monk called Bede, or or Bede, and there's some references, you know, vague beyond that, and some people try to challenge that, but, you know, there's good information about the ties of the name Easter to this goddess, and we'll just leave it at that for now. Now, the followers of her cult appear to have lived in pre-Christian Europe, and You know, when Christianity spread into that region, this was perhaps one of many pagan religious practices that assimilated with Christianity through Catholic practices of appropriation. As one prominent preacher I know used to say, don't ever say the word Easter. Now he would tell his people to say Resurrection Day, which is probably somewhat appropriate, but perhaps more appropriate would be to just Keep the feast of Passover, the days of unleavened bread, and the day of first fruits. It was, after all, the day of first fruits that Yeshua rose from the dead and exited the tomb. It was significant because it was the biblical day of first fruits. And, and Paul makes reference to Yeshua as the first fruits. So he ties that in together. It, it wasn't because it was. Sunday. That, that's not why he, he he didn't rise on the first day of the week to make Sunday a replacement of the Sabbath and everybody now just does everything on Sunday. That, that was never intended to be that way. So even resurrection day is, you know, probably more appropriately called the biblical feast of first fruits, which is a part of the overall Passover celebration. So You know, if you really feel like, you know, resurrection day, I mean, there's nothing wrong specifically with that terminology, but you would be much better off and much more biblical if you would celebrate Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, because Paul, again, linked first fruits with Yeshua. So celebrating the day of first fruits is celebrating the resurrection. Now, you don't find people hunting for colored eggs left by some egg-laying rabbit in the Bible. I I know, that, that should be pretty obvious, right? It's not in there. What you will find are passages like Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 31 in particular, that tell us not to take the practices of pagan religion and turn them into things to worship Yah with, worship God with. You know, or people who used to preach against saying Easter in the past may be changing their views to appease the crowd. But I will stand firm in, against such practices. So long as the evidence suggests, it even slightly suggests, that even there's a possibility that Easter is derived from paganism because it's not in the Bible. I'm going to continue to warn Christians against something that would ultimately provoke the wrath of God they claim to be serving. You know, if it's not in the Bible and there's even a hint of evidence or a hint of a claim that something is pagan, idolatry, witchcraft. You know, I get a whole bunch of books that talk about how important those egg hunts are in actual witchcraft religion so you know we got something that's not in the bible and at least has some good arguments i think they're much stronger than others think but has some good arguments that it's pagan idolatry witchcraft look man it shouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which holiday we should we should cast aside, and which holy days we should be embracing. You know, do what's in the Bible. Do what your Messiah did. It's not that difficult. You know, it seems to be difficult for some people to comprehend this, but it's not that difficult. Now, the final thing that I want to address here with, with these alternates is the modern Jewish Seder service. Now, this is very traditional in Jewish culture and it's become more popular with believers who are identifying with the Hebraic foundations of Christian faith. You got messianic people out there and you've got the so-called Hebrew roots movement out there which is you know kind of controversial and there's some weird beliefs tied to it. But because of these things, people, In Christianity, a lot of people are coming to want to identify with the culture of the Bible. And then they look to Judaism and say, well, you know, the Jewish people, they've been doing this for a long time. Let's see what they're doing. And so they come across the Seder service. Now, uh, I don't necessarily oppose the practice, but... I would caution against it, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. Um, some claim that the Passover celebration Yeshua led his disciples in, you know, the Last Supper just prior to being led to the cross, was a full Seder. Well, you know, while, while there's some obvious similarities, of course, there's also problems with this theory. Most dominant being how all indications are that modern Seders were developed much later by the rabbis or the sages, probably around 80 AD or so, roughly 10 years or so after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, you know, because they were trying to figure out ways to continue keeping the Torah and keeping the Passover and other such things without a temple in Jerusalem. The Seder, you know, it's an interesting event and and I've participated in, in them in the past and they offer up a lot of symbolism to help you connect with the Jewish or Hebraic culture that's prominent throughout the Bible, which, of course, the Bible is a Hebrew book written by Hebrew people about the Hebrew God while they lived in the Hebrew culture that was built around, inspired by, or built around the Torah. But when you get down to basics, the Passover has always been intended to be an intimate family celebration kept at the home and again read exodus 12 it it outlines the original passover and gives you a good foundation for how you're supposed to celebrate passover in your home with your family now there's also some indications though that the seder even the seder service the jewish seder services contain or possess some elements of paganism blended into them as well and that's why I would exercise some caution. There's some indications that there's some ties to the Roman festivals that were going on around the time and then one good Bible teacher by the name of Kevin Jeffrey has written a Passover guide where he describes how the there's an egg used, a single egg used on a Seder plate and he goes into detail about how that may have some ties to paganism. Kind of funny how the egg always shows up around this time of the year as a pagan symbol. You know, you got the Seder, you got claims that with the Seder, it's pagan. You got, you certainly got claims, uh, undeniable claims that it's tied to witchcraft. Like I said, I've got a whole bunch of resources from written by actual practicing witches about the importance of the colored egg hunts in witchcraft and wiccan religion. And again, show me in the Bible where somebody went out and hunted for colored eggs. You won't find it in there. It's not in the Bible, but it's in all of these witchcraft handbooks. Again, this this should not be difficult to figure out what we should be doing and what we absolutely should not be doing. Now, When you go back to Exodus 12, you find out that the Passover is very simple. You're to eat the lamb prepared with bitter herbs and unleavened bread in your home with your family throughout the duration of the days of unleavened bread. Now, I recommend developing a shortened and simplified, what they call a Haggadah, which is your basic guide for Passover with uh, the liturgy and, and whatnot. And you can kind of develop your own if you have a little bit of an idea of what you want to do, and you kind of know what's good and what should be rejected from some of these. Now, if you want, I do have a very simplified guide, very basic, very Christian. You know, it's kind of designed for Christians who have never celebrated Passover before. And again, you can find that on the website of www.truthignited.com. There's an article written as a blog format for you, and there's also a PDF you can download and print out. So, you know, if you need guidance for how to celebrate Passover in your home with your family, that resource is available to you. And this will allow you to hit the, the key biblical points of, I guess, a traditional Jewish Seder, but without the unnecessary additions, and especially the potentially pagan aspects of the Seder service. Now, if you're listening to this message and have been in modern mainstream Christianity, you know, celebrating the Easter festival or taking communion, I hope that this will cause you to think a little bit about what you're doing and whom you are really serving by doing such things. You know, are you really serving Yeshua when you're celebrating something like Easter, the name of a pagan goddess, or or taking communion just, you know, whenever it's convenient, or would you really be serving Yeshua when you do what he actually asked us to do, which is celebrate the Passover? You know, research the origins of these practices you might be surprised just how unbiblical and and even how pagan they they really are. You know, I, I sometimes sit and think, how must our Messiah Yeshua feel? Our high priest in the heavenly realm, in the kingdom of Yah, up there looking down at all the Christians, and he said, keep the Passover in my memory, and all the Christians are running around putting out their colored eggs and, and getting their rabbit in, in, and all of that stuff together. And some of these churches have you know carnivals and all kinds of worldliness going on. And they're doing all of this claiming to celebrate the single greatest event in the history of the world, the resurrection of our Messiah. And they're doing it all of this in this big, worldly, witchcraft environment. And they're doing it in the name of a literal pagan fertility, spring fertility goddess from another religion. I mean, I am just blown away at how big that is, how big that event is, and nobody wants to say anything about it. But if you keep the Passover, if you're willing to keep the Passover, I hope this teaching's given you some added insight. The you know, Christian religion tells you to celebrate numerous things you can't find in the Bible. But, you know, Christmas is another one. You know, Halloween. Christians celebrate Halloween. I, I don't even understand that. You know, the whole concept of Halloween has people dressing up in these demonic looking classrooms. Now, I know churches, they. Like they like to say, "Oh, well, we're not really doing that. We're having hallelujah night, or we're having harvest party, or, or fall festival. And, and we're gonna let the kids dress up in, in cute little costumes. And man, come on, man, just stop it. Just stop it. Go to the Bible and do what the Bible says. You know, you can find so many feasts and festivals in the Bible and if you want a fall festival, look at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a whole week long, and you can have a whole big fall festival on your church grounds during the Feast of Tabernacles. You don't have to celebrate Halloween, not even an alternative, so called alternative to it. You know, Moses, Yeshua, and Paul all tell us to keep the Passover, every single one of them, three witnesses. We got three witnesses telling us to keep the Passover. And there are the witnesses that is the most prophetic voice of the Tanakh, what they like to call the Old Testament, the most prophetic witness, not only really of the gospel, but the the Bible altogether, but definitely in the gospels, in Yeshua. And then in the apostolic writings, of course, Paul is kind of regarded by most as the most prophetic voice in the duration of the apostolic writings, following the gospel messages. And they all tell us to keep the Passover. I'd ask you to consider in these days leading up to Passover, whether you're listening to this message leading up to Passover, maybe you've listened to this message and it's seven or eight months before the next Passover. It doesn't matter. As you get prepared for the Passover, you know, decide, are you going to keep following the traditions of men, the traditions of churches, or are you going to decide that you don't care what the churches are doing and you don't care what other Christians are doing, so-called Christians, you are going to follow the Torah of your God. Just think about that and Prepare yourself to celebrate Passover, just as Moses said, just as Paul said, and above all, just as Yeshua said, celebrating Passover, do this in my memory. You know, I would like to think that if your Messiah said, do this, no matter what, do this in my memory, You would think that the Christians would would make that the absolute highest priority of the entire year instead of celebrating the resurrection in the name of a witchcraft goddess. So that's all I got for you today. So, hey friends, I wanna thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share it with others. If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a 4 dollars or $9.99 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. And if you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.